Welcome back to today's episode of Ownership Matters, a podcast for homeowners in resident-owned communities brought to you by Rock USA. I'm Paul Bradley. And I'm Mike Bullard. Okay, everyone. Today, we're going to delve into community financing, but not the type of financing our listeners are accustomed to, not the loans and mortgages you took to buy your community. No, we're going to look into the types of investors or lenders that lend to community development lenders like Rock USA Capital. And actually, we're going to look at an emerging slice of lenders in community development. Okay, Paul, you're already going down a rabbit hole here. What do you mean exactly? Mike, I'm about to admit I'm a community finance nerd here, okay? And you're outing me as such a geek that I can't even get through the intro. All right, today's guest is Kurt Lyon and he's with a nonprofit called Transform Finance. He and others recently wrote a report about how some of us in community development actually engage the communities we work with in the financing decisions itself. Not on the loan review committee, but as a part of how loans are made. Now, Transform Finance is trying to inform investors, like foundations, for instance, that the best community development lenders are those that listen to community. And that is pretty cool. It's a way to think about what we're doing in a way that, you know, people are starting to pay attention to. And I'm really excited about that. Okay, you're warming up. Let me tell everyone about our guest. Kurt Lyon is the deputy director at Transform Finance, where he advocates for a more just economy. In this role, he manages research and advisory projects contributes to reports and briefings, and coordinates staff across programs. Before Transform Finance, Kurt became activated by solidarity economy movements and provided operational support for several organizations in the Boston area, including the Boston Ujima Project and New Economy Coalition. He considers himself an active learner of investment structures that redistribute wealth and power, as well as movement strategies that change the financial system. Kurt is a graduate of Hamilton College and lives in Queens, New York. Great. Welcome to Ownership Matters, Kurt. Really happy to have you here today. Please, could you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Like, where did you grow up and what did you want to do with your life when you were graduating from high school? Yeah, thanks for having me, Paul. I'm really glad and excited to be here. I am from the Boston area, suburb of Boston called Newton, a very, very fortunate and, and nice place to grow up. Oddly enough, I was really into math in high school. I ended up being a math major when I went to college and was kind of interested in the, the puzzle solving aspect of it, but it was very abstract, I would say. You know, math can seem really abstract in, you know, basic algebra, but then once you get deeper into it, it's a whole nother level. So I kind of tacked away from that towards some of the more social change interests I had, but that, that was where I was at around high school. Excellent. What some of us in high school would have called a, a math nerd. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully <laughs> like, you know, a cool math nerd, but I can't deny it. <laughs> Kurt, if I were a betting man, I would say that probably only a handful of our listeners will have heard of Transform Finance. Can you start on the ground floor and tell us all about your group? Yeah. In a nutshell, what we do is we help a wide variety of stakeholders transform the world of finance to be more in line with social justice goals and uh, just everyday lives. And we do that on 
multiple fronts and with multiple different stakeholders. With investors, that's where the finance comes in. Uh, we do a lot of research, direct work with different kinds of investors on building strategies, and then also some narrative change work within the finance world to figure out how investors and their power of moving lots of money around can kind of do that alignment with social justice. And then on the flip side, we work also with movement organizations, nonprofits, community-based groups in influencing that finance. How can we get other folks joining kind of the conversation around making finance a tool for social justice? What are the points that they can kind of target through campaigns, strategies, conversations, other narrative building work? And we do uh, a lot of trainings and also some more hands-on support with those movement partners to achieve that side of the mission. So we're kind of building a bridge between these two very different groups of finance folks, investors, and then on the other side, social change actors. <laughs> okay, Kurt. So here, I'll admit to being a community development finance nerd right here. So this is really exciting. Wonderful to have you. And let's get a little further into this for our audience because Transform Finance has some very important principles in terms of how it thinks about community financing. And you talked some about the lender or the investor side of this. And I want to talk a little later about the borrower side of it and some of your your analysis there. But on the investor side, what kind of lenders are you talking about here? You know, what kind of lenders care about community engagement, community development? You know, who are these people and these organizations exactly? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I'm really glad you mentioned principles and community engagement. So Transform Finance actually has three guiding principles, which we call the transformative finance principles. And that is number one, the communities involved with an investment should be engaged in the governance of that investment. Number two is having that investment be non-extractive. So leaving the business or project or the community no worse off after the investment from before that investment. That's actually a term we took from uh, the working world, a key partner in this general space of community-engaged financing. And then the third one is balancing risk and return fairly across all stakeholders, so investors, communities, workers, anyone who's affected by an investment. And that's really our, our kind of guiding force behind all of our work. And to your question about what kinds of lenders are interested in that framework, the community engagement piece. It's definitely a wide-ranging group across lots of different types of investors. So there's big investors um, that could be asset owners. Think of probably Wall Street. Everyone kind of thinks about big banks that you know have their money all over the economy in lots of different ways. They tend to be very good in, in often uh, harmful ways and finding ways to profit off of lots of different parts of the economy. And then there's also smaller lenders like funds. So you could think of kind of like impact funds. Family offices often will, will create funds with a type of, of asset manager. And then also community development financial institutions. Those are kind of more impact-focused development finance institutions that are deploying capital for businesses, for housing, for infrastructure projects in communities all the time. 
So there's a really wide range in there. And as you might guess, the community development financial institution types are more likely to be thinking about community engagement, about impact, about aligning with the values and priorities of the communities they serve than some of the bigger investors out there. Wow, that is quite a range of investors. I was intrigued when you talked about community development financial institutions or CDFIs. Of course, RockUSA's subsidiary, RockUSA Capital, is a CDFI, and there's some 1,200 or so of these across the country. But to segment, really, those that engage community uh, engage in community-driven finance or community-engaged capital versus those that are still in the community development finance fields that are more, I'll say, top-down, just as a phrase. Maybe you have a better way to describe how some of those CDFIs are making investments in community that's different from community-engaged capital. Maybe you have some examples of that, Kurt. But that it struck me is that the field, even community development finance, is, you know, runs a, across this spectrum of community engagement. Yeah, that's a really important point, Paul. Definitely not all CDFIs are the same when it comes to this community-engaged approach. Actually, we just wrote a report on the community engagement in investment. And one of the big things that we kind of picked up as we were talking to lots of different types of CDFIs, talking to community partners, talking to some of the foundations who support this kind of work through grant making, but also some of their own investments, is that there is a a big range in how that engagement is thought about within the group that is even thinking about it in the first place. Like you're saying, most CDFIs are pretty top down. I think that is actually a good way of describing it, kind of taking a lot of traditional finance practices, a lot of traditional lending practices, and applying it in the context of seeking impact. So, you know, creating jobs, creating affordable housing, very important goals, but still kind of calling the shots themselves and and taking that power that is, you know, traditionally in the hands of investors and, and applying it in that way for good. We definitely like to think about ways that are more bottom up that share some of the decision making, particularly with directly the the residents or organizations that are being affected by an investment, we see that as being a deeper avenue towards impact. And we we really like to focus on how that can actually build power for those communities, for those organizations, through the relationships, the capacities built, the skills. You know, there's a lot of important knowledge and, and practices that don't have to just be in the hands of investors or traditional lenders. You know, we actually do see the ability for grassroots organizations who say are representing a particular racial group or are focused on, say, like tenants' rights in a particular city. Those types of groups have been shown to step into this complicated finance space and do well and and say, hey, look, this is how we want to make investments. We're going to build the ship and drive it ourselves. And I can share some examples of some really interesting projects that are doing that. And I think it's important for the folks who are still in the top-down mode, but maybe considering, okay, how can I deepen my impact? Yeah, like community engagement is possible, and there's lots of different ways to do it. It doesn't have to be creating all new entities. CDFIs can do lots of things that kind of incorporate those principles into their ongoing work. Uh, And that's part of what we're trying to, to do. 
Kurt, one of the categories you mentioned was the family offices. And I think that's not necessarily a, a widespread term. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what, what a family office is and what they're doing. That's a great question. I think probably before I was at Transform Finance, I would probably have thought of you know, kind of like a mom and pop store as a, a, a family office. So thanks for holding me to that. Family I'm right office, with you. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> is uh, I think it's a somewhat flexible term of a uh, like a private high net wealth individual kind of creating an investment vehicle on behalf of their own wealth or their family's wealth, and that's a very kind of traditional financial vehicle that makes all sorts of investments in the stock market, in bonds, in kind of all of those financial asset classes that are out there. However, I bring family offices up in particular because there is, I think, a track record of some of the more progressive families out there who maybe have foundations as well, but in addition, a family office that provides a little bit more flexibility around what kinds of investments they make. There can be a tendency to experiment a little bit more. Definitely not the, the norm whatsoever. But some of the projects that we feature in our report are either funded by or were supported by in the early stages by family offices. So that's why I mention it. No, thank you for the explanation. That was great. I'm curious, in terms of the lenders that you're talking about, how receptive is that audience to transform finances, message and principles? Have things changed since the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement that transformed so much in early 2020? That is a very key question for us right now. And you are really right on the money in mentioning the changes because we really have seen a lot of financial institutions who were definitely progressive and thinking about mission-driven investment or impact investment who are, I would say, dipping their toes even more into saying, okay, how can we really shake up dynamics of power And that might be in lending practices, rethinking how much risk we're taking on, seeing so many people in the pandemic losing their jobs, so many businesses that are struggling to stay afloat saying, hey, you know, we are an investor that has some reserves. Maybe we'll take on a little bit more risk. We know some of these loans might have to be forgiven, but we're going to make them anyways. There's been a little bit more appetite for that amongst what I would say is the investors who are already doing some progressive stuff. But to the first part of your question, in terms of how receptive our audience is, it's definitely still not the mainstream approach to be talking about sharing decision-making and investments in sharing power. That is not at all the, the baseline. I'm hoping that the work of activists in the Black Lives Matter movement really calling out some of the issues in power with philanthropy, with impact investment, with community development, and demanding more, that that sticks around. And I think that at least in some of the more thoughtful spaces in the investment world, and in the impact investment world in particular, I think those changes are lasting. Um, you know, it's been kind of a year or so, um, this week being the one-year anniversary of uh, the murder of George Floyd. I think there's good evidence that the narrative has shifted in in a positive way. So I think that is encouraging, but there's still a lot of work to be done and a lot of 
pressure from the outside that needs to, to keep it up and, and hold these institutions accountable for the power that they have with their capital. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So can we turn here and jump to the other end of the spectrum, as Paul mentioned earlier, where that capital, those investments, that financing reaches the local communities? Remind us one more time of the principles and can you share an example of how those principles work in real life? Yeah, absolutely. So I mentioned our three transformative finance principles. Just uh, again, that's investments are engaging the communities whenever feasible, are non-extractive, leaving them better off than they were before. And then the last one being balancing risk and returns fairly. There are plenty of examples of each of those individually. One project that we featured in our recent report that I can say clearly is doing all of those things is the Boston Ujima project, which has a fund in Boston um, that is totally community controlled and community governed. They have a wide voting base that kind of decides major decisions about the funds, including what businesses they want to be supporting, whether or not an investment goes through, how to do stuff like popular education around finance and engaging local groups, nonprofits, community-based organizations in their communities. And they have this community assembly process that kind of brings folks together for, for major votes. So in that way, very community engaged and governed to a degree that um, is pretty unique, I would say. And the Ujima project also, I would say, is doing non-extractive financing. They're still in the process of making some loans. But from my understanding, they're very conscious of being flexible in terms of the the return timeline that businesses will have to, to pay them back in having other fair terms, say interest rates, you know, not over leveraging debt. Sorry to use a finance term, but not putting too much debt on the side of the, the borrower. So that's kind of indicative of a non-extractive financing approach. And then um, what's really interesting on the last principle of balancing risk and return fairly is the Ujima project has what they call tranches for investment. So depending on who you are, you can invest into the fund at different interest and risk rates. This is designed very specifically to protect money of community members who are investing into the fund because that's something they actually allow is that anyone can invest. I think the minimum is $50 can invest $50 into the fund, and then they actually have a vote that is just, you know, one member, one vote following cooperative principles. And if you're a community member, particularly in their target communities in Boston, which is working class and people of color, you have a higher interest rate and get paid back first, whereas some of their investors are, say, foundations who are making investments into the fund not grants, but actually investments, those receive a lower interest rate. And also they get paid back last. So that's like a very clear way to distribute risk across those, depending on how much risk they can bear. You know, if someone working parent puts in $50, like that means a lot more than a foundation that puts in maybe even 50,000. But that is proportionally just, uh, you know, a drop in the bucket for big institution. And I would be remiss to not mention that um, there are definitely some other funds that do something similarly. Ujima works closely with another fund in Boston called the Boston Impact Initiative. They have a similar tranche style investment. And there was another fund 
in Massachusetts called PV Grows that also did something similar. So that's a really interesting tool for funds or lenders in terms of taking in money. How are we balancing that risk? Yeah, there's some really interesting work happening in local community-based investing. Good colleague out in Oregon that's helping organize local investment in commercial plazas that you know serve a neighborhood and you want it to continue in the neighborhood and you know there's an opportunity for you to invest in that plaza and generate returns for yourself while ensuring that that plaza continues to serve your neighborhood just some really interesting innovative stuff that's going on in in this community-based finance space now Kurt, we were of course delighted that you included Rock USA in your recent report. And of course, the report will be linked at the bottom of the podcast. But uh, I'd love you to just talk about what you saw in Rock USA that merited including us in your report. Yeah. So, Rock USA is one of those projects that, you know, in going into this research, we, we knew we were going to feature. We had been tracking your work for a while and, and knew that. There's a lot of really interesting stuff that you were taking the lead on and hopefully people are watching and, and learning from. A couple of things that to me stick out, you are national and you're working with communities on the ground and providing some of that upstart uh, lending capital to start a conversion process. But in doing so, you're still leaving it up to those individual residents or as a group to decide whether or not they want to go through with that process. I think that's really important that you're not kind of parachuting in and saying, all right, here's how it's going to be, take it or leave it. The national governance model for Rock USA, having residents from all across the country kind of serving in, in governance role, I think that bakes in to a large degree some accountability for the organization as a whole and saying, you know, look, the members we're serving, they are going to be the ones who are, you know, at the top, you know, making sure that things are kind of falling in line with, with what the communities on the ground actually need. And another really important piece is um, kind of in the outcomes, having the resident ownership, having the ongoing management after the investment be in the hands of residents, the people who are living on the lots that you are financing. I think that is really taking the process being democratic and extending that into the outcomes. Um, I think that's a really impactful practice and ties into lots of other movements around cooperativism, um, economic democracy. And when you look at that practice in comparison to the norm of how real estate is being invested in, you can think of the wave right now of private equity investments into real estate in manufactured home communities and everywhere else, really. The alternative is pretty disastrous in some cases. And so thinking about the urgency and need to have these kinds of transactions to protect the livelihoods and homes of people is, I think, really stark in the case of Rock USA's work that I think is present for other groups, but definitely at the scale that you're working at, it's really clear and impactful. Yeah, thank you for that, Kurt. It, uh, it's so great to hear it reflected back and each of those elements critically important. And I, I've said it many times, uh, one of my proudest accomplishments at Rock USA is 
the creation of Rock Association, where the member communities actually elect three directors to the Rock USA board. We take that very seriously. They're involved in every decision at the board level. Strategy, strategy actually is beyond the association directors. Uh, we actually engage the leaders at the Rock Leadership Institute every three years in a day-long strategic planning effort that is tremendous. You know, to see some of our Rock directors, the board of directors, you know, facilitating small groups of co-op leaders and really getting at some of the core issues. It's been very powerful. And it is, like, as I said, one of my proudest accomplishments to make sure that the, that the organization across the spectrum is really engaged in, in the issues in communities. So, so thank you for highlighting that. And, you know, is there anything that Rock USA uh, was unique for in your set of examples? Anything that was specific to Rock USA? Of course, governance through the Rock Association, the association itself is unique, but I'm, I'm just thinking more, more broadly, anything particular? Yeah, I think what makes Rock USA unique for this kind of grassroots community-engaged investment that we were researching in our report is the scale and replicability of uh, that's demonstrated. I think a lot of models that we looked at could reach a big scale, could be replicated in, in many different places. Rock USA has demonstrated that and, and is one of the most longstanding examples that we were looking at. But just having national scale with a clear process and stream for financing that makes it possible to do these kinds of conversions that you do in lots of different contexts, lots of different states, types of communities. That's really the goal of a lot of projects. Um, interestingly, some projects that we talk to, you know, we, we try to ask the question, you know, what is your growth trajectory or like, or do you want to grow? Like, how are you viewing that kind of scale or replicability? I think a lot of project organizers realize that replicability might be more important, but also more possible than, than scale in a lot of cases. Because is it feasible in the case of the Ujima project that I mentioned earlier to have, you know, a national fund that has all of these communities in many different places, you lose something in that regard. So I think a lot of them are, a lot of projects are trying to say, okay, how can I support others doing this work? I think the Rock model makes it really clear how the roles are distributed, maintaining accountability, taking a process that has worked, experience from others, uh, and putting it into practice. I think that's, that's really unique and something that should be applauded. Nice. Thanks, Kurt. Hey, we're about ready to finish up here, and it's been a wonderful, wonderful interview. I just want to open up this opportunity. Is there any, anything you'd like to communicate with our audience, co-op members from around the country, others who will be joining in to listen to your views on transform finance. Anything else you'd like to share? Oh, gosh. I think I would say, as mentioned earlier by Mike, you know, transform finance, not a household name. We love to talk to folks who are also thinking about this stuff, finance, social justice, power, ownership, how capital can be used as a tool for social change. So I would just say, check out our website, transformfinance.org. We'd be happy to, to chat if, if there's something that you're working on or are working through. We work with a really wide variety of stakeholders, both on the finance and on the, the grassroots side of things. So there's a lot of things that fall in, in our wheelhouse. And then the last thing I would say too, is that 
all of the, the names and organizations that I mentioned during this conversation, and also that we're lifting up in our report, I really want to center their work, which includes you all at Rock USA, Transform Finance, is researching, is talking, is, is seeing and synthesizing a lot of stuff out there, but it's really the work on the ground that, that makes this work possible and that is doing the the transforming of lives and, and making the world a better place and providing better vision. So anytime I mention the name or or we do, definitely make sure to check out their work as well. I think that's what we need to spread the word about this kind of work. Absolutely. You bet. And Kurt, thank you so much for including Rock USA in your report. And really thank you for really highlighting a really important part of community finance, community development finance, and that is how financing engages community in solutions and lasting solutions still owned and controlled or rooted in community decision-making. So really a wonderful conversation for this community finance nerd. We thank you for your time and for your great thoughts today, Kurt. Yeah. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you, Mike. Um, Thanks everyone at Rock USA for having me on. I hope it was a good conversation. I definitely enjoyed it. It was wonderful. Certainly was. Thanks, Kurt. Well, I'm a lot clearer now, Paul. I'm still not a financing nerd, but that was really interesting. Phew, Mike, I am glad to hear that. I got to say, I was a little worried when we got started. Kurt, though, was really clear and well-spoken, and he's into community development finance, as much as I am anyway. I hope our listeners enjoyed hearing that. Now, there are lenders who start with community and have community inform the lending that they do. Not that lenders don't know and impose important conditions that uh, really are about benefiting the community, but the lender is only one side of the equation. I've always experienced that lenders and borrowers have one shared goal, the success of the borrower. I know you always say that, and it is so true. I never thought of it, but I like that we live that out here. That and more, Mike. Stick around for more. That's an invitation to all of our listeners. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Ownership Matters. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Be well. Be well.